So some 3,000 years ago, a young shepherd boy was anointed to be the king of God's people, the nation of Israel. He was anointed or chosen by God. He was anointed by the people and he was uh, anointed by the rulers of the people, but not everybody in the land was willing immediately to follow King David. David had to raise up an army of men to bring his kingdom about and solidify his kingdom and then expand it into the territories that God had chosen for him to do. In the book of the Bible that I'm sure you are, are, are most familiar with, that you turn to often, First Chronicles, uh, we read these verses as that describe David pulling together his, his men. He says, now these are the numbers of the divisions equipped for war who came to David at Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. The sons of Judah who bore shield and spear were 6,800 equipped for war. Of the sons of Simeon, mighty men of valor for war, 7,100. Of the sons of Levi, 4,600. Now Jehoiada was the leader of the house of Aaron, and with him were 3,700. Also Zadok, a young mighty man of valor, and his father's house, 22 captains. Of the sons of Benjamin, Saul's kinsmen, 3,000. For until now, the greatest part of them had kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. Of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800. Mighty men of valor, famous men in their father's households, of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were designated by name to come and make David king. You see what's going on here? The chronicler is describing all of these men trained and ready to fight for their king. And you see these phrases repeated over and over again, mighty men, men of valor, capable with the sword and shield and that kind of thing. But it's the next group that has my attention right now. Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Well, we know as we read the story that David was not the ultimate king of Israel. He was a type, a, a foreshadow of Jesus Christ who would come a thousand years later and he would bring about the eternal kingdom of God and be the high king of God's people forever and ever. But the Lord Jesus, just like the predecessor David, has raised up an army. That's you and me. And he is building his kingdom on planet earth. And as we look around us right now in our culture and all that's going on, if ever we needed sons of Issachar, men and women who know what the church should do, men and women who understand the times, it is now. This is a statement that has been used a lot in my lifetime. I've never used it, but I'm at the place now, maybe it's because I'm getting older, I've never seen times like we're in. Now, I didn't live through the 60s like some of you did. So maybe some of this is old hat, and you can teach some of us younger folks what to do. But we need to be 
people who understand the times. There's, a, there's an event coming up in about 100 days, a little less, maybe on November 3rd. Maybe you've heard about it. It's a presidential election. If you recall four years ago when we were preparing for the election in 2016, we as a church did quite a bit of, of teaching and, and discuss, had a lot of discussions about that election because we thought it was a significant one. I don't think we could have predicted then how significant this one is going to be in 2020. Uh, we live in, in unprecedented times. I know that's an overused phrase, but I think it, it matters. There's a, there's a professor and a scholar and a philosopher and an economist named Thomas Sowell. If you don't know Thomas Sowell, I encourage you to read everything you can get your hands on by Thomas Sowell. He's an old man now. He's 90 years old, uh, but he's one of the greatest minds of the last century for sure. And I saw an interview with him uh, just the other day where, and he's not coming from a Christian perspective, at least I've never heard him claim the name of Christ. As far as I know, he's not a believer, I hope he is, but he doesn't, he's not speaking from a Christian perspective per se, he's speaking as an American and again an economist and a philosopher, and he's, uh, it's important for you to know for this account, he's a black man, and he's been writing for years about racism and about the true reason why uh, black people, especially black boys and men, are struggling the way they are. And he has a very different take than what we hear on the news today over and over again. And here's a guy, he's not an alarmist, he's not, a, he's not a, the kind of guy that likes to stir up trouble, he's a very soft-spoken man, very gentle. But he said in this interview, he's convinced if Joe Biden wins this election, America and the entire Western culture will pass the point of no return. When a man of his intellect says something like that, that gets my attention. Say, so why is he saying that? What is at stake in his mind that I need to listen to? For us as Front Range Alliance Church, our primary concern is not the political landscape of America. Now, we should care about that. We are citizens, and we're to be good citizens, and we should care for the blessing of our nation. We should be concerned for the good of our nation. But our primary concern as believers is how do we please the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we live in this, in this world? How do we affect change in this world? How do we vote in this world that will bring about the greatest glory for the Lord Jesus Christ and build his kingdom? Yes, we're American citizens, but above all, we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, the eternal kingdom, and that is what has to matter to us more than anything else. But we cannot sit here, simply gather here on Sunday mornings and sing our songs and, and cheerlead for Jesus and then go out there Monday through Saturday and not care and not vote and not try to influence for the kingdom of God the things that happen in this nation. They are not mutually exclusive. There's a hierarchy, there's a priority, but we don't do church and do Christian things in here and then live as American citizens out there. As we talk over the next several weeks, and we're gonna dive into all the stuff. That's my great word for all this. We're gonna dive into all the stuff that we need to think about that's going on in our world, and we're gonna do so primarily from the perspective of Scripture, 
and of Christianity and the glory of Christ. It's not going to be right versus left. It's not going to be Democrat, Republican. It's not going to be those things. It's going to be what can we learn from the Bible that will help us serve Jesus most faithfully through this time. And we have to be people. Lord, make us a people who are of the sons of Issachar, who understand the times and who knows what God's people should do. That's my prayer. I ask you to join me in that prayer and come during these weeks and listen and let's learn together and then think about it and let's talk together. We're going to uh, bring back the text in questions throughout this series, not today, but down the road so you can text in questions and we'll engage with some of those. But it's a crucial time in the history of this church and of the church and the kingdom of God and we need to understand the times. Today we're not going to get into the issues as much, but I want to talk together from the Word of God about our attitude as we engage in this conversation. And I told you last week that uh, this week is going to be introduction, and last week was sort of the introduction of the introduction or the preface, and I know you read books, you don't ever read the preface and introduction. You should. You should. In fact, one of the books I wrote, I put the introduction as chapter one, because I knew half of the people wouldn't read the introduction if I called it introduction. It matters. So last week, I, if you weren't here, go back and listen. You need to know the content of that message as we get into the series. Today is the true introduction. You need to listen, even if it's not chapter one. But I want us to, to look at the scripture together and gain the right godly attitude as we observe what's going on around us. So we're going to look at a few things that Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy. So Paul is writing to this young church leader, and he tells Timothy, he said, he's reminding him, I left you in Ephesus because there's stuff going on in Ephesus that I need you to handle. And apparently there was some turmoil, some controversy in the church itself, and then there was some stuff going on in the culture that was causing division among the church members. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, I need you to get a handle on this and teach the people of God how to interact with each other and how to interact with the broader culture. So we're going to not expound 1 Timothy here, but just draw some of the principles and apply it to our day. So starting in verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul says, As I urged you, again, Paul speaking to Timothy, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus for this purpose, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. Apparently, there were men in the church who had been influenced by other teachers, and now they're teaching Christians in the church, and what they're teaching is what Paul calls strange doctrines. It's, it's a form of the word hetero-teaching. Hetero is just the Greek word for other. They were teaching things other than the doctrine that Paul had taught them, other than biblical doctrine. Well, what is it that that Paul is focused on, that he says, don't let them teach these hetero things. We'll, we'll see that in a minute. But he says, you need to stop them from teaching those things. Because what they're teaching is causing people to believe myths 
and get caught up in these strange genealogies and it's just causing controversy and mere speculations. He says, I'm telling you, instruct those men to cut it out, to stop teaching. And one of the things we can learn from this is it is possible for people to get caught up in secondary issues or heterodox issues and start teaching them in the church. And that's not okay with the Lord Jesus. Those things need to be stopped. So it's good for all of us in, in the teaching vocation, but all of us in general, to check our hearts, check our minds, and think, am I being influenced by, by strange doctrines, by things that just give rise to speculation and, and myths and controversies? I need to check myself. We as elders need to make sure that we don't allow that to go on in the church. Now, what is he contrasting these strange teachings with? Well, we see it there at the end of verse 4. So they're teaching those things that give rise to mere speculation rather than the things that further the administration of God, which is by faith. That's just a lot of words to say what we call the gospel. Right, the plan of God, the administration of God, which is by faith, is the gospel. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his kingship and the coming of his kingdom. Those are the gospel. And these men are teaching things that are distracting from exalting Christ and all that he's done for us and his reign over heaven and earth right now. And Paul says, make them stop. It is not okay. Now, he doesn't say, go and get in their face and call them names and run them out of the church and treat them like second-class citizens. That's not what he says. He says in verse 5, the goal of our instruction in other words, the instruction, I, I'm telling you to instruct the men to stop teaching this, but the goal of telling them this is love. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We want these men to stop, but we want them to love God and to love people and have a, a pure heart, an unmixed heart, a heart and a will and a desire that is for Christ. And a sincere faith, it's, it's unmixed, it's, it's, it's true, and a good conscience so that they're not acting disobediently. And then Paul makes a statement about these teachers, and I wanted to see if you've ever heard teachers like this. Verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Have you ever heard anybody speak and you think, they don't have a clue what they're saying? They don't know anything about these things they're making confident assertions about? It's all over the place. Do you ever watch the news? Do you listen to politicians? Not all of them, but some of them. And the media who covers them? I mean, that's the perfect description of our, our nation right there. People who are talking about things they don't understand, and they're confident in their assertions, but they're relatively clueless about what they're saying. Well, this is happening in the church. And Paul says, tell them to stop. They don't know what they're talking about, and they're leading us away from the gospel. 
So then it gets into a little bit more about what they're teaching. And I, I'm, we're not going to focus on the law part and what's really going on in Ephesus because, again, this is, I'm just trying to draw the practical application for us. So listen as I read and think about what's going on in our world today. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact the law is not made for a righteous person. So the law is not for righteous people, but now I'm going to describe for you, he says, who the law is good for. And listen to the list. But for, for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Paul here is telling Timothy, the teaching, the sound teaching of the gospel is what matters. And there are a lot of things that are contrary to that sound teaching. And he says you can determine the things that are contrary to that sound teaching by the behavior of the rest. Did you see anything in that list that reminds you of what's going on in our world today? It's the perfect description. And here's what we have to learn from this. If we're going to understand the times. Don't allow teachers to influence your thinking if they are soft on those things. Are you hearing me? There are a lot of teachers within the broader evangelical church. And they come to you via podcasts and essays and books, ebooks, video series, on and on and on. We have more access. I know I keep pounding this home, but we have more access to information than at any point in human history. And that scares me to death to know that you could spend from now till next Sunday being flooded with dangerous teaching. Whoever you're letting fill your heart and your mind with what they are proclaiming to be true, if it is soft, if it is weak on lawlessness and rebellion and ungodliness and sin and the unholy and the profane and murder and homosexuality and sexual immorality and kidnapping and lying and perjuring and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, you, you gotta be careful not to listen to it because it can lead you to a place that you'll find yourself on the wrong side of the kingdom of God. These things matter. And Paul couldn't lay it out any more clearly. Now we have to be careful to watch our own motives as we observe and evaluate 
what's going on, both within and without the church. Because it's very easy to say, yep, those people are bad, and to take it upon ourselves to eradicate the world of all the badness and become very animated and passionate against those people. Well, Paul knows that we're going to be tempted to that, and so he gives us some instruction in chapter 2. First of all, do you know how many times that phrase occurs in the Scripture? Not too many. Not too many. Whenever an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ says, first of all, I think we need to pay careful attention because he is giving us a spirit-inspired hierarchy of what matters to Jesus. So whatever comes after first of all is something we ought to pay attention to. So he says, first of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that we may, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and iniquity. If you're going to get animated about all the stuff that you see going on, and you're going to listen to pundits feeding your head and your mind and your passions with all kinds of excitement in a, in a, in a negative way about what's going on, and you haven't prayed for your leaders, I think you're in disobedience. In fact, I know we are. This is a direct command. Pray for your leaders. Pray for them. Pray for kings. Pray for the political party you don't like. Pray at the highest level. Pray at the local level. Pray for them. Getting in your kitchen a little bit, right? I know. Because Jesus has been in my kitchen for like three weeks. And I'm sharing the love. I hear it. I see it. I know what's going on for some of you. You're really, really pumped up and aggressive about what's going on. Okay, there's a place for that. But are you praying? Are you praying for the good of all of us? Are you praying that the, the heat of everything would come down so that we can live quiet, peaceful lives? If you're not praying for that, chances are you're being wound up by things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Now, I don't know your heart. That's between you and Jesus. I'm just drawing an inference from what Paul is telling us here. And we are commanded to pray. We want quiet lives, quiet lives of godliness and dignity. That's not what we see on the news every night right now. And actually, the news is not covering it as much as they once did. It's not what we're seeing on social media right now. There's a lot of ungodliness and anything other than dignity, tranquility, and quiet lives. But why is Paul concerned about this? Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
God's highest priority is not a political party in the United States of America. That's not his end game. His end game is the salvation of wicked people. His end game is that the gospel is being preached. People are repenting of their sin, putting their faith in Jesus Christ, which will impact the political landscape of our nation for sure. I mean, that's not rocket science, right? If 95% of Americans were genuine, born-again, spirit-filled Christians, would I be preaching this series right now? Not a chance. I might not even have a job. Or I'd have a different job. I wouldn't be needed as much. Imagine what that would be like. Can, can you just, for a moment, imagine what it would be like if the vast majority of Americans were genuine believers? Oh, Lord, maybe so. Maybe so. That's what God is doing on planet Earth. Big picture. Now he's also involved in the lesser pictures as well. But everything he's doing is to be for the glory of his son, King Jesus. And that needs to be our highest priority as well. So pray, he says, pray for the leaders. Pray for the government. Because God is taking his gospel throughout the world. Then he gets more specific. Verse 8. Therefore... I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. You know what's amazing? So almost every handling of this passage that I've heard taught <laughs> focuses in on, are we supposed to pray with our hands raised? Not all of them, but many of them. It's like, you know, we're, especially in, in, in our church, we're like, I don't know if I'm supposed to raise my hands or not. George's been trying to get you to raise your hands and stuff, and you're like, can I do that in this church? That's not the primary concern of Paul, is the posture of your hands when you pray, men. I would like to see you men lift up your hands now and then when you pray. It says in the Bible. But that's not the biggest issue. Notice what he says. I want you to pray with holy hands lifted up. The hands that you lift up are holy and do so without what? Wrath and dissension. Our posture before the Lord in our heart as we pray for kings and governors and mayors and other legislatures legislators, our posture and our heart has to be not anger and not seeking to divide and not seeking to cause strife. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. And you've heard me say this over and over again, sometimes in order to bring about peace, you have to go to war. So peacemaking is not simply sitting still and behaving yourself as the king tells you to all the time. But even where we rebel against the law of the land, so-called civil disobedience, which the time may come when Front Range Alliance Church has to do that, even there, our, the posture of our heart has to be not wrath and dissension, not anger and fury and rage and stick it to the man. 
Our posture and our heart has to be, we want to serve Jesus. We want to see peace. We must obey God, not man. But we really don't want to cause hostility in our communities. That does not bring glory to the Lord, to be hotheads, to be looking for a fight. We may have to fight. In fact, there's a sense in which we're constantly at war with the enemy. That's capital E, Satan, not somebody in America. We are engaged in battle, but our posture has to be, we want peace. We want righteousness. We want real justice. We don't want wrath. We don't want division. We don't want fighting. So he says, lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So that's what he says specifically to men. I wonder why that is. <laughs> why does he have to tell men, calm down, will you? Because he knows man pretty well. He knows how we can get riled. Now there are you know, some women that can get riled too, but I'll, I won't go there. But there must have been something else going on in this culture. Something that was rousing women to, to go against traditional behavior and even godly behavior and join with the push against that peace and tranquility. And, and we know this, and I'm not going to take the time to, to get into it, but there's ample evidence that what we call modern day feminism, first, second, third wave, all of it, this is nothing new. The world has seen all of this before. And it was happening leading up to Paul's day as well. And when women were throwing off the shackles of restraint, as they called it, and rebelling against tradition, they won't be ruled by men, and they were causing all kinds of strife and turmoil in the culture and in the church. And so Paul has something to say to women in that situation. Likewise, he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now, again, just like the holy hands, don't get too caught up in, in that description. I don't think there's anything wrong with women wearing some of those things. We'll, we'll talk about that some other time. But that's not his main point. Where he's going is don't be caught up in the worldliness and thinking that your, your standing before God and your value and your worth is all wrapped up in the outward appearance. Instead of that, rather, by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Ladies, that's what you want to be known for in our culture. Not what you look like on the outside. I mean, if you're married, your husband cares about that. That's good. But you shouldn't care what anybody else thinks about your appearance. And God is not impressed with your beauty. Now, he created beauty. Don't get me wrong. We as creatures, that matters to us to some degree. But before God, what matters is not your outward appearance. It is good works. It is the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of godliness, and not getting swept up in the rebellion of our culture. I am woman, hear me roar. No, no. That's not the posture of the Christian woman. How can I serve? How can I be godly in good things that are serving others? That's what he says. And of course, that is 
countercultural. The, the world is telling women, no, you've got to fight for your rights, stand up for them, and so on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rah! And we join right in, if we're not careful, with the current of the day. And every woman in this room someday is going to give an account to the Lord Jesus for your behavior and for your attitude. And he's told you what he expects of you. And it's not fancy dresses. And it's not sticking it to the man. It's the gentle, quiet spirit, the good works, knowing you're serving the Lord and not man. You see what he's doing? Paul is bringing to, to all of us the caution, indeed the command, don't get swept away with the current tide. We're, we're pushed around by every wind and doctrine. He said that to the same church in Ephesus. Do not be caught up in the latest fad to go through the church. Well, there's a lot of fads converging right now in the evangelical church. And Paul would say, be grounded in the truth of Jesus Christ and the character that honors him. And don't get swept away in this stuff because we're all going to stand before Jesus. Men and women are going to stand before him and give an account for our words, for our actions, for our attitudes. And he doesn't want to hear from us, well, I read this book and this guy said and he got me all fired up and I just went crazy. Well, you read this book and seek the fruit of his spirit and the character that his spirit builds and pursue righteousness and godliness and gentleness and courage there's a place for boldness. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. But all from the posture of holy hands without wrath and dissension and with the good works that are becoming people who profess to belong to Jesus Christ. I keep telling you, we're going to dive into many of these things head on. We're going to look at what the scripture says about them. But what we must not allow ourselves to do is to become American Christians. There is no word that comes before Christian. People are trying to do that all the time. I'm a this Christian, I'm a that Christian. No, no, you're a Christian. Our allegiance is to King Jesus above all else. So we have to go into this discussion and observe the world around us with the mindset of how do I honor Jesus Christ in the midst of this? How do I vote on November 3rd in a way that will honor Jesus Christ? And how do I live between now and then? And my prayer for us as we go through this is the Lord, who's already told us he's given us the mind of Christ, that we will pause like we talked about last week and think and not just respond, not just be provoked, that we will seek his spirit to renew our minds 
and not be conformed to this world, but be transformed so that we may honor the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer. We are tempted to a variety of things. We have voices from within and without, even those claim the name of Christ that are seeking to influence us. Lord, I pray for Front Range Alliance Church that you will keep us on the rock of Jesus Christ, that we will be aware of the devil's schemes, that we we will refuse to allow any voice be louder in our heads than your voice. And that you, Lord Jesus, through your spirit, will show us when and how to have compassion, when and how to have courage, when and how to speak out, when to be quiet, when to take a stand, when to take a seat. And that we will constantly be aware of our loyalty and our allegiance to Jesus Christ and him alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.